So, let's see if we can get this to work. We're going to, uh, just let you know, we're going to start in Joel chapter 2. So if you want to find Joel in your Old Testament, it comes right after Hosea. All right, there we go. So, the Holy Spirit and Israel's future. So, I, we, uh, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And then uh, Pastor had asked if we would look at the Holy Spirit for Israel in the future. Uh, the Old Testament has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, actually. And the more we've been studying the Holy Spirit in the Sunday school lesson... Um, the more I'm realizing how, how much is actually there. So when you're speaking with a Jewish person, um, Deuteronomy 6.4 is very important to them. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one. Okay, And so that idea that the Lord is one does not allow for one God and three persons in their mind. Okay, It's, it's a single substantive unity, which we would agree with. But we believe that it's in three persons, and they they don't comprehend that idea. But when we look at the Old Testament, and we can see even uh, cases that the New Testament authors point out to us, especially that well, you've got God and you've got the Lord, and the Lord says to my Lord, and how do you have two Lords? And you must have two persons in the Godhead. Um, well, there's also much to say about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, especially in the prophet, uh, prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. Uh, so, anyway, it's, a, it's really been an interesting study, and I've, I've enjoyed it actually quite a bit. So, um, we're going to touch on three different topics today and um, about the Holy Spirit in the future for Israel. So, where I want to actually start is Joel chapter 2, and... Um, I wanted to put a slide in my slide deck here, but I forgot. It's one that I've used before. Okay, so when we're talking about the future of Israel, we obviously believe that there is a future for Israel, that the present state of Israel is not the future for Israel. Okay, so the present state of Israel is not a fulfillment of any biblical prophecy um, of, of any kind. Okay, so there's a lot of people who think that it is, and they're good people, be nice to them, but, but it is not a fulfillment of prophecy. So the future for Israel is future for Israel. So when I ask the question, what is the next event, the next prophecy to be fulfilled in Scripture? What is the next event in what we call eschatology or end times? Lincoln, the rapture, very good. All right, so everyone should know that. The next thing that's going to occur is the rapture. Now, what we don't know is when the rapture is going to occur. But since the rapture is the next thing to occur, nothing else has to be fulfilled prior to the rapture. Okay, so there's no fulfillment of prophecy prior to the rapture. You can read the newspaper headlines and you can say, wow, this looks a lot like what the Bible describes. And it might be... But it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. And I mentioned this, I've mentioned this several times. I mean, like with COVID is a perfect example. Because we know from Revelation that there's going to be a great pestilence that wipes out one fourth of the world population. And so what does God do in history? He scatters about pestilences. We've had this throughout human history. We know this by reading history. And why does God do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We but one thing that we learn from why God, from what God does is we look at how man responds to that. 
And man is supposed to turn to God in faith by that when something like that happens. But man does not. In the hardness of his heart, man will turn away from God every time. And we even see that in Revelation. We see the Son of Man in the wrath of the Lamb. And what do they say? Have mercy on me? No. Let the rocks fall on my head and cover me up so I don't have to look at him. That's what the human heart is really like. So you might see things that are similar in prophecy to what's going on today, and that's God giving us a hint of what it will be like someday, just a hint of what is going, what is yet to come. But it's, he's doing that to get our attention. All right, so after the rapture, there is going to be a seven-week tribulation period, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 in particular. There's going to be seven years of tribulation on the earth. And for those of you, especially if you were in the Daniel Bible study, but even if you weren't, what event begins the seven-year uh, tribulation period? Who remembers? It's a pop quiz. Any A students in the class? Sebastian? Correct. The Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. Okay, so the rapture doesn't start the 70th week. It's the covenant, covenant of peace. So this is Daniel 9, 27. So there will be some time period, some days, maybe a month, maybe two, between the rapture and when the covenant of peace comes. Because when the rapture occurs, the world is, you think the world is nuts now. All right? And I've said this before. Imagine, imagine a conservative number. Imagine 10% of the world's population, well, it's easier to do the math. Imagine 12.5% of the world's population are, are born-again believers, okay, worldwide. That's one-eighth of the world's population. That's why the math is easier. Okay, so, uh, gone. So what is the remaining seven-eighths going to do? Um, and uh, it won't be anything like we've seen. So anyway, someone is going to have to take control and try to make peace in the world. And that's going to be the Antichrist. Now, halfway through the 90-day period, uh, the, the Jews, according to Daniel chapter 9, and according in a passage we'll look at in Matthew 24, uh, and we can look at Revelation 12 and 13 also, uh, the, the Jewish people are going to come to a realization uh, and this is what uh, Daniel says. Are we going to look at Daniel later? Um, I keep saying it, so maybe we should just look at it. Okay, just flip back over to Daniel chapter 9 for a moment so you can see it there in front of you, uh, which is right before a Hosea, so don't turn back very far. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Okay. Daniel 9, verse 27, last verse in Daniel 9. And so Daniel is being told this by an angel. And the angel says, He shall make a strong covenant, that is the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And we know from our study of Daniel that that one week is seven years. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So for three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, at the temple, there won't be sacrifices and offerings going on. And then he says, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. And so the one who makes desolate is the Antichrist. Um, and now, and then the, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So the one who is desolating, that's the Antichrist, he will be himself desolated. And Daniel 7 is a good example of that. We will look at Daniel 7 later. So, um, so three and a half weeks, the midpoint, there is going to be an event that occurs at the temple and uh, Jesus, will point, and we'll look at Matthew 24, Jesus points this out as when you see this happen, okay, this is going to be a distinct event in history, in Jerusalem, in the temple. It's probably going to be some kind of desecration of the temple. And we get that from Daniel 11. Okay, so... There, there will be an event that the people are going to see. And at that moment in time, God is going to 
flip a switch, as it were, in the minds of the people of Israel, where they're going to understand, all of a sudden, they're going to understand everything. They're going to understand who Jesus Christ was, what happened when they killed him. They're going to understand the, the sin that they are sinning against God and the, the tribulation which they are under is judgment from God's hand. They're going to have understanding of all of this. It's going to, it's going to come to them. Now, Daniel, or Revelation 11, there's also going to be 144,000 Jewish people who are sent out as evangelists at the same time. Okay, so this is all happening in the middle of the tribulation period. Um, that the Jewish people are coming to a realization of what, of what the truth of the matter is. And they're responding to it. Okay, now, then three and a half years later, they're persecuted for three and a half years, and at the end of that three and a half years, Jesus will come back and establish the kingdom, judge the nations and establish the kingdom. All right, so a little bit of context. Now, Joel chapter 2, so if you skip over Hosea and go back to Joel chapter 2, and we're really interested uh, at uh, verses 28 and 29, um, but... I kind of want to read all of, I just kind of want to read the whole book. But anyway, for a lot, for sake of time, let's just, we'll read 28 and 29. We'll come back to the context here. So Joel 2 verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So if you're wondering when we we're going to get to the Holy Spirit, we're, we're there now. Okay. Shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Okay, so there's a question, and the question is simply this. When does this pouring out of the spirit take place? At what time does it occur? And we are going to look at, uh, and the two possible answers, two possible answers, one is in the middle of the tribulation period, and one is at the beginning of the kingdom period. Okay. Now, we are going to look at a couple verses later, specifically that are, are quite clear that they are talking about the kingdom. I'm going to argue for just a moment that this is actually talking about the tribulation period. And good men disagree. Um, I don't know that any fistfights have actually occurred over this interpretation, but... Uh, I'm not alone, and, and I think it has some merit, uh, and I'll explain, I hope, why. So the first thing of context we have to note is the phrase, Day of the Lord. So if you look back in Joel chapter 1, oops, probably. yeah, Day of the Lord. Okay, Joel chapter 1 and verse 15, the Lord says this through Joel, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Okay, so this phrase, day of the Lord. That's what I want to look at here for just a minute. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Now notice how this day of the Lord is described. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will it be again after them through the years of all generations. Um, 2 verse 31 says, um, well, I'll read verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Um, and then chapter 3, verse 14 in our English versions says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. All right, so the day of the Lord, not to get too distracted by that topic, that's a big topic. But the day of the Lord in Joel is a time of judgment. Okay, particularly it's a time of judgment on the people of Israel. You notice in chapter 2, verse 1, let all the inhabitants, or he says, an uh, trumpet in Zion, an alarm on my holy hill, my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land trouble. The Lord is near. So this is judgment upon Israel. The day of the Lord, as talked about in the book of Joel, is judgment upon the people of Israel. Now, Joel does some fascinating things here. In chapter 1, there is a judgment that God is sending on the people of Israel, and the judgment are locusts. The locusts are going to come and eat all the crops, and then there's going to be famine in the land afterwards. Then in Joel chapter 2, he takes that picture of the, of the locusts as if the locusts were an army marching through and destroying everything that they pass, pass over, and he likens that an army coming to destroy Israel uh, in the same way. So now, he says, these locusts are going to come, they're going to eat everything. Like the great locust plague here in Granite Falls in, uh, what was it, 1878, something like that? Which one? Oh, I thought, I thought you were correcting me. Um, you, you can look it up in the history books. It's in the library, public library. The great locust plague, I think it's 1878 in Granite Falls. Maybe it's 68. Um, so the, pl- the locusts are going to come, they're going to eat everything. Then he says, an army is going to come and destroy you just like the locusts. And they're going to destroy you just like locusts. They're going to trample over everything and leave nothing but destruction in their wake. Uh, now, in Joel, uh, later in Joel chapter 2, he's still using the same metaphor of the locusts. The locusts are an army, like a real army, and there's a real army like another real army that's going to come in, in the future sometime, another judgment. So Joel is building metaphor on metaphor here. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Okay, so in Joel chapter 2, um, he says, uh, let's see, where are we going to start? So the judgment is coming. That's verses 12, well, that's verses 1 through 11. The Lord, verses 12 through 17, calls for the people to repent. Um, then verse 18, after the people repent, uh, then it says, verse 18, And the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. By the way, Israel is still... To this day, an approach among uh, approach uh, a reproach among the nations. Okay, that this is so. This has not happened just because they're in the land. All right, there's still a reproach on them. Uh, verse twenty: I will remove the northerner from you, drive him into a parched and desolate land. Twenty-one: Fear not, O land; be glad and rejoice, for your Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, the pastures of the wilderness. The trees are going to bear fruit. O children of Zion, rejoice and be glad uh, in the Lord your God. So all these blessings are going to come upon Israel. And they're the blessings of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, uh, and lots of other places, uh, Deuteronomy 28. Um, and then skip down to verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Okay, this is important. So God says that when I bless you, when, when all of this happens, all of your enemies at that last day, that last judgment, that last day of the Lord, when all those enemies are put away, you're back in the land safely, peacefully, and I am blessing you, and I'm blessing your families, I'm blessing your livestock, I'm blessing your crops, I'm blessing the weather. Um, God is blessing everything. He says... Uh, in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Okay, so he's talking about 
the kingdom's coming in, you're being fully blessed, you know you're, I'm going to be in your midst again. Now here's the tricky part. So, so the first line of verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward. After what? After they're in the land and there's blessing? Because that's what's in verse 27. And you shall know. So, so are the verses 28 through uh, 32 uh, to the end of chapter 2, are these taking place after the kingdom starts? Well, there's a problem with that, and that's verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun turned to darkness. So we read in those other two places in Joel, which talk about the fear of the Lord, or the day of the Lord, that those events, astronomical events, take place during, or right before, but in the midst of the, the day of the Lord. So it seems like at first reading, at first it's like, oh, well, verses 28 and 29 uh, kind of go with verse 27. But if that's the case, then verse 30 through 32 do not go with that. They go back to a previous time, and they're kind of out of order. Okay, so this is the problem. How do we solve the problem? Well, the word afterward in English, first of all, um, is not the normal word for afterward in Hebrew. It's simply the word after, like later. Well, I'll talk to you later. Now, later is obviously after, but I'll talk to you later is a little bit more indiscriminate. In other words, what we don't have is an order of events given by this adverb. We don't have, you'll be blessed in the land, then after that event, I'm going to need to pour out my spirit. Okay, That's not what we have in the Hebrew. And in addition to that, what the Jewish scholars have done is they've actually put a chapter division here between verses 27 and 28. And in fact, I think in my, I have a footnote, I do have a footnote in my ESV that says verse 28 is chapter 3, verse 1 in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, chapter 3 goes from verse 28 to 32. Uh, that's its own chapter. So there's a couple of reasons why um, it, the, the textually and grammatically there's a break here. And what he's now doing is going back to, um, he's listing three events that are going to occur at the end times. Okay, so it's a, it's a break, it's separate from verse 27, and then he lists three things that are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen in these future events is there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. And it's God's Holy Spirit. It's right that it's capitalized in your ESV. That's what it means. And remember, we talked about this um, before. We don't see Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, I think, only once. I think it's Isaiah 63. Uh, otherwise, we see the Spirit of God or my spirit when God is speaking. That's how we know we're looking at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And there's some debated passages uh, where it's a little bit more uh, ambiguous. Uh, usually when it's ambiguous, the ESV translates it with a lowercase s. All right, your son, the, the effect of this is your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Uh, even the male and female servants are going to have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Now, why would, um, if, this, if I'm right, this is a tribulation period, why would the Jewish people... Uh, need prophecy, dreams, and visions given to them by the Holy Spirit. Why do you think they would need that in the tribulation period? What's that? <laughs> They're going to need something? Why would they need something? Christians are gone. Yep. They're going to need help. That's, that's a good answer. They're going to need help, but they need more than just help. They're going to need divine revelation. 
we have some revelation that's going to tell us what's happening. And John even says this in the book of Revelation. Sometimes he doesn't understand his own prophecies, what he's seeing. But he, he seems to allude to the fact that the people who are living during that day will have wisdom to know what they're seeing. So I think what God's going to do is give them divine revelation to help them through that last three and a half years of the tribulation period of intense persecution. So I think that's the main reason why they're, they're getting it. Verse 30 says, and I will show. Now in Hebrew, this is a series of events. Okay, I will pour out my spirit upon all, all flesh, sons, daughters. And he's speaking of Israel here, actually. And he says, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And then when it says, and I will show, this is a series of events in Hebrew. The next thing that's going to happen after this, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that's the first thing that's going to happen. The second is, I'm going to show wonders in heaven. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, sometimes uh, scholars will say the day of the Lord is seven years, and the great and awesome day of the Lord is the last three and a half, that, that intense persecution that takes place at the end of the tribulation period or thereabouts. Um, verse 32 continues the, the train. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So the third thing that's going to happen is restoration of the people of Israel. Okay, so there are going to be, so the, the and it shall come to pass is the next list in the sequence, the next item in the sequence. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit comes first, the great and mighty day of the Lord and the astronomical signs comes next, and then the third thing that comes next in the chronology is people are going to be saved, God's people are going to be saved, and they're going to gather in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Those who escape what? Those who escape the day of the Lord. Those who escape the tribulation period. And those, he says, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So there's going to be a sheep and goat judgment. All right, so <clears throat> this is taking me far longer than I had anticipated. I'm not very prepared, I guess. Um, all right, so I'm going to argue, I'll just leave it there. Um, I'm going to argue that these are Three things in sequence that are their own thing. Afterwards doesn't mean after verse 27. It just means later in time or at the end time. And then he lists these three events that are going to occur. The pouring out then occurs about midway during the tribulation period. Um, I would also go to Matthew 24. Um, that... I think informs this. Uh, Jesus talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount references Daniel 9.27. Uh, he talks about the last three and a half years of the tribulation period and the return of Christ. Um, at the end, the restoration occurs after that. And then Revelation 12, uh, verses... Uh, that's odd. I've got it out of order here, I guess. Verses 6 and 13, and Revelation 13, verse 5. So I'll let you cross-reference those verses, but they kind of lay out the timeline uh, of events and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit here, I think, is, comes before uh, or in the middle of the tribulation period. Any, any questions on Joel 2? Well, I'll let you look over Matthew 24 and Revelation 12 and 13 on your own uh, there, I think. Uh, so three questions, Matthew. All right. Topic number two. So much for three topics. Uh, Ezekiel, I think. Did I change this? Yeah, we're going to look at Ezekiel and John, uh, compare it with John 14. So Ezekiel and Isaiah uh, both talk quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, interestingly, Jeremiah talks very little about the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel actually talks a lot, a lot about spirits, um, all kinds of spirits in Ezekiel. Um, let's see, do I have verses here? Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel 36. Sorry. Ezekiel 36. There are two passages we want to look at. All right, so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a theological controversy about whether or not the Holy Spirit indwelt believers in the Old Testament. We are told in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This is a pretty clear teaching in the, in the New Testament, um, in the epistles, that we have a ministry of the Holy Spirit, and one of his ministries is that he indwells us. And, of course, this is quite a mystery. Um, you know, your first question would be, if the Holy Spirit's inside of me, uh, why do I still sin? And that would be, that'd be a good question. But, um, so we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, in systematic theology, which is pastor's realm more than mine, uh, this is tied to the saving work of the Holy Spirit, primarily, speaking very technically, regeneration, which is the being born again. So in the New Testament teaching, you're born again, the Holy Spirit does that work in you, and then you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and these acts are instantaneous. In other words, we talk about them chronologically, faith comes first, then regeneration, or regeneration comes first, and then faith, something like that, and then, uh, and then indwelling. Now, we, we just do that because our minds are so small, okay, that we really can't handle it. But they're really, they're happening all at the same time. So what about believers in the Old Testament? Well, if you're a covenant theologian, it's easy. They're, of course, they're indwelt. They have to be, because they're the church. But if you're a dispensationalist, well, then what do you do? Was David indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Was, uh, was Seth, uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Um, was Abraham indwelt by the Holy Spirit? So these are the questions that, that we ponder. I'm going to argue that actually they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the same way in which we were, or are, we still are, um, to correct the recording there. We are still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ezekiel, interestingly enough, and, and this is kind of an aside, Ezekiel uses this expression that God's Spirit enters into him takes him to a special place, and then he prophesies. And I can I could show you the verses. We won't look at them today. Um, but this happens to him over and over and over again, where the Holy Spirit comes to him, indwells him, and then he prophesies. So the indwelling in Ezekiel is actually a temporary thing. It's not the same when he uses the expression. But what I want to show is why I think that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit for Israel, but that it is future, and that they were not indwelt in the Old Testament. So, 37 verse uh, 27. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think. How many verses are you wrong here? Do I have them? Oh, what? Yeah, 36. Um, I'm actually going to go to Isaiah 63 first. <laughs> All right, Isaiah 63 first. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All right, so this is kind of an interesting passage. I was looking at this passage, actually in preparation for Sunday school, when Pastor was gone this week. Pastor met a guy down at Faith, and the guy at Faith then sent, uh, who I, I don't know, sent me a friend request on Facebook. So I accepted it. Then I went over to look at his Facebook wall, and he had this passage posted on his wall. So we were thinking about the same thing, which was uncanny, so to speak. All right. Um, let's see. Let's go back to verse 8. Isaiah 63, verse 8. Uh, For the Lord says, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. 
In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But, verse 10, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So what he's recounting is the people, the history of the people of Israel. When they were in slaves as Egypt, God appears to them as their redeemer, as their savior. And he redeems them, he rescues them out of slavery, and he makes a covenant with them. They shall be my people and I shall be their God. Okay, and this is, that's the covenant. Whenever you see that in the prophets, that is the covenant, by the way. That's the vow. I will be your God, and the people say, and we shall be your people. Well, it's the other way. You shall be our God, and he says, you shall be my people. Okay, so um, that is the covenant itself right there in the words. It's the vow. So God does this. He brings them out of, the peop- out of, the, out of Israel. And then Isaiah says here in the history, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. This is in the midst of the, the, the camp. Okay, so verse 11, he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people uh, who brought them up out of the sea with shepherds of, with the shepherds of his flock. So they grieved his Holy Spirit, uh, which we often think of in the New Testament, but not so much in the Old Testament. And the idea here is that the Holy Spirit was present with them when they came out of the promised land, when they were supposed to go, or came out of the promised land, when they came out of Egypt and were supposed to go into the promised land, um, when they ended up wandering around the wilderness for 40 years with Moses, all right, they grieved the Holy Spirit by sinning against him. Well, was the Holy Spirit present with them when they came out of Egypt? Well, we have a pillar of cloud uh, who is God in the Old Testament. And the pillar of cloud is referred to as Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in Corinthians, right? Uh, then, now, here in Isaiah, we're, we're being told, I think it's a reference to the pillar of cloud, that it's the Holy Spirit who is, who is in their midst, in the midst of their camp. And uh, so the Holy Spirit was present with the people of Israel. So he was in the camp. He was present with them. All right, so now, what talks about in them? All right, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Now we go back to Ezekiel. If you were wise, you would have kept your finger in Ezekiel. All right, 36, verse 27. Um, Okay, let me back up. This is a really good this is a really good passage. I'm actually going to go back to verse 22. This is probably worth the time. Ezekiel 36 verse 22. All right, so the Lord says this through Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. All right. And, and there's a lot here. We've read this in other passages as well. But the the Lord is, because we're talking about this, the people sin against God. God judges the people. They repent. He restores. Okay, there's, there's a common theme there. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. All the nations, which, uh, all the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And this is, I think, the second coming of Christ and the sheep and goat judgment, the nation's judgment in Matthew 25. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. By the way, this didn't happen in 1948, just to say that again. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Now, it's lowercase s in the ESV. This is one of those ambiguous spirits here. I will give you a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, your, sorry, 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I wanted to read this because this is a theme through Ezekiel and Jeremiah um, and probably Isaiah that uh, this idea that they have a heart of stone it's going to be removed from them and a heart of flesh will be given to them in its place. And it's talking about salvation. And I will put my spirit, capital S, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Okay, so what, 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 what did I just read? You shall be my people and I shall be your God. What is that? That's the new covenant. Okay, that is the new covenant. So this is at the beginning of the kingdom. This is at the beginning of the kingdom age um, that first the Holy Spirit was with them in the camp. In the future, when they are in the promised land, again, in the, in the messianic kingdom, God is going to put his spirit within them. Okay, so with them, in them. Okay, with them, in them. With them, in them. All right. Let's go to John 14. I know John is a New Testament passage, but Jesus is teaching here, and he's telling his disciples about the future. And you'll notice that we almost every Sunday school lesson ends us lands us somewhere in John 14, 15, or 16. So if you haven't figured out the importance of John 14 through 16 in the study of the Holy Spirit, um. This is, this is where we're at. All right, John 14, 17. Um, I'll start reading in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And we mentioned that this is comforter, advocate, to be with you forever. Okay, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Why is that? For he dwells with you. Okay, you see that wording? He dwells with you. That's present tense. He is talking to the Jewish people in the first century year of our Lord, and he says, the Holy Spirit is dwelling with you in your midst. Well, it doesn't say in your midst in Greek, but I'll say that. Okay, he's dwelling with you. The Holy Spirit was with the people of Israel. But notice what he says next. He says, and will be in you. Future. Well, when are the, is the Holy Spirit going to come after Jesus leaves the earth? Okay, so Jesus is going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend to the Father. And after he ascends to the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be in them. <clears throat> okay. Now, yeah, I'll stop there. But, so there's a, there's a, there's a similar pastor's got, we'll have to talk about this later. <laughs> uh, so, with you, in you, with you, in you. And that's the pattern I'm, I'm looking at there to say that the indwelling that's prophesied in Ezekiel 36.27 and 37.14, by the way. I didn't have it in the slide. Oh, yeah, I do. 37.14. Um, prophesies the same thing. At the same time, the Holy Spirit will be, will be put within the people of Israel. All right, so there will be an indwelling uh, for the people of Israel, and it will be associated with the, um, the coming of Christ, or the kingdom. Uh, or, well, there's salvation in the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> all right, the third topic, and we're out of time already, is the general pouring out that does take place at the beginning of the kingdom. Um, there are some verses here. Uh, Isaiah 32, there's a couple verses in Isaiah, Ezekiel 39, 29. And uh, they both talk about the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I... This is, this is a fun one. So this will just be a homework exercise. Okay, this is something you can go home, do at home, that'll be worthwhile. Um, but Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the kingdom. And it's that phrase, pouring out uh, upon all of his people. 
And what I wanted to note here is that the it's tied to the kingdom. And when you when we get into um, Jesus Christ in particular and his rule as king, when Jesus was on earth, the king was present. And what did Jesus preach to people? What was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, because the kingdom and the king go together. So there is a tie, and I referenced a couple of verses here, Hosea 3, 5, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 27, that demonstrate that the king, this is just a couple of many verses in the Old Testament, that the king is coming at the beginning of the kingdom in the future, the messianic kingdom. And this pouring out of the Holy Spirit is coming when the king comes. A lot of things are going to come when the king comes, but this is just one of them, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, what would be fun to do, this is where it really gets fun, is go back to the early chapters of Luke. Again, Pastor mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and it stuck in my head when I was looking at this. I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense. Who prophesies when Jesus comes? Zechariah, an old man. Anna, an old woman. Mary, a young woman. In fact, she calls herself a handmaid, a a female servant. Um, You start looking at that and you're saying, Jesus is here and people are prophesying. Old men are prophesying. Young men are prophesying. Uh, you know, shepherds are seeing visions. Joseph sees a vision or has a dream. Now he says in Joel 2 that old men will dream dreams, but Joseph has a dream. Uh, the wise men have dreams. The wise men have revelation who come from the east. So you have, you see some of this activity in, in miniature and the breadth of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in miniature. Um, just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And I think this is why when on the day of Pentecost, Peter's like, why are you guys marveling at this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I mean, the Old Testament told us that things like this were going to happen. So so why do you think that this is some big deal? God says he's going to do this. God has been doing it. And uh, anyway, that's a fun little study to do and compare the scriptures with the scriptures um, and you can see how they link together. Okay. I'm out of time. Um, Any questions? Any questions I can't answer? Any hard ones? We get called into the pastor's office after Sunday school. No, I'm just kidding. They'll slap me around with dag or something. Charity. Yes, so there is a, um, is this what you were going to say? Oh, okay, good. Um, So Charity's question is in John 14 uh, and verse 17 that there's a footnote that it says as in you. That's what your footnote says? Okay, yeah, I don't actually have that in my ESV, that textual note, but um, I have a Greek text here. So for the people who ask really hard questions, <clears throat> all right, yeah, so number nine, yeah. All right, ooh. Mm. So this is interesting. So the end of this verse has actually um, a number of different ways to, that it's read. Uh, one is that um, it will be, will be, and that's the one that the ESV picks. It's actually the one that my ESV editors pick as the best, but they admit that there's a lot of different texts available. Uh, there are some other texts that have is. There are some other texts that have will be, is. So we have two that say will be, two that say is. Um, yeah. Well, 
Augustine thought it was will be. So we're going with Augustine. No, just uh, but I'm glad you brought it up. So there are, there are some ma- uh, Greek manuscripts that have it in the present tense is. And there are some Greek manuscripts that have it as will be. The majority of the texts say will be. Um, although there are, not to get too far involved, There's one. Yeah, the vast majority are actually future tense. But the the reason that they think it, you know, that they would go with the present tense is they're looking at. No, they don't even have p. No, they only have one. That's odd. So normally, what happens when they put in a footnote like that? is that there's, uh, and this is the new apparatus. So normally when they have a footnote like that, they're saying that there's two different Greek readings. And usually what happens is you have a lot of readings that are closer to our date, about 1000 AD, that will say one thing. And, that, and then you'll have some that are older, like 200s, 300s AD, that say something else. But we only have a few of those. And they'll say... Those kind of balance each other out. One family says this, the other family says that, so, you know, it could go either way. In this case, they actually don't have that, um, which makes me surprised that they put the footnote in. doesn't surprise me I don't have the footnote. I'm surprised yours has the footnote. Um, but uh, I, it seems that it would be will be, is the better reading. Uh, yes, Scott? That's interesting. Well, there is there is a newer edition than mine of the ESV. I have the older, I think I have the first edition, and I know the second one came out. Mine's 11 years old, 12 years old. But I have the newest Greek edition. Um, although the newest Greek edition would probably footnote it as is in you, but I don't, I wouldn't agree with them. That surprises me, actually. I would have to look at it a little bit more closely. More Greek than you thought you were going to get into today. But you had Greek class. <laughs> How many years ago? 14 years ago? All right. Okay. Well, thanks for answering the, asking the questions I can't answer. Um, with that, then, Pastor.